Well, good morning. It's good seeing you guys here today. You guys do a good job with responses right down here in the youth section. Give it up for our youth group, Connect Youth. We love you guys. You guys are awesome. Hey, my name's Andy, and uh, I'm the Connections Pastor here, and we're so glad you're here today. And hoping you're have a really, having a really good weekend. Um, for the most part, my, my weekend's been going pretty well. I did have one little kind of frustrating thing, though. Um, didn't anyone else pick Virginia to win the whole tournament? Anyone else? Yeah. There were a few of us, and it, never before has the number one overall team been beaten by the number 64 overall team. I mean, that's frustrating. But somebody's excited for UCM, whatever that school was. Nobody even knows who they were. Um, but you know what makes it even more frustrating for me? And I, I don't want to call out names or anything. Again, you know me, I don't like to embarrass people. But I don't want to make a big deal of this, but like when you do an office pool or something, and I'm not going to say names, but like, and you're, you're getting beat by somebody who wasn't even born in this country, and he doesn't know that much about college basketball. In fact, I'm not, his team name kind of admits to that. His team name is Dave Knows Soccer, so uh, his pool entry or whatever. So I'm getting beat by this guy, and I think I know something, so that was a little bit humiliating. So pray for me this week, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get some grief. All right. It's so good seeing you guys here today. As Dave mentioned, we're in the middle of a series called The Week That Changed the World. And we're looking at the days and the significant events that were a part of Jesus's week that led up to and included his death and his resurrection. And last week, as Dave mentioned, we were on Thursday. And there's so many significant things happened on Thursday. Today, we're looking at Friday, also known as Good Friday. And Good Friday is a day where, you know, numerous prophecies were fulfilled. Numerous significant events took place. And you can get a little bit overwhelmed if you try to look at that and try to, you know, sum up a message in 30 minutes and the significance of what all of this means. We're, we're looking at the day on which Jesus was actually crucified, Good Friday. So there's a lot that happened there. And so we can't look at everything that happened. But what I want to do is I want to bring out one seemingly sort of small uh, mention, okay? It's not small in significance. It's small in its mention. Here's what I mean. The event that we're going to talk about today is mentioned in three of the four Gospels. But in the three Gospels where it's mentioned, it gets one sentence. It doesn't get a long, long paragraph of explanation. It gets one sentence because I think the people who were the original audience knew what it meant because of their context. We don't have the same context, and so we've got to dive in a little bit more and try to figure out the significance of this moment. In this last song we sang, What a Beautiful Name It Is, we, we had one mention of this significant event in the song. I think we sang the line one time. The line was, death could not hold you, the veil tore before you, okay? And so today what we're doing is we're looking at this, this moment in history where in the same moment where Jesus breathes his last breath and, and offers up his, his spirit, you know, to the work that God uh, brought him into this world to do, in that moment, something significant happened, and three of the four gospel writers mention it. So let's look at, at Mark's account of this from Mark chapter 15, verses 37 and 38, okay? So in the preceding verses, this is the chapter where Mark tells the story. You know, Good Friday started with Jesus, you know, he'd been condemned the night before by the Roman and the Jewish authorities. He's um, being flogged, he's being whipped, he's been uh, ridiculed, he's been spat on, he's been mocked. He's had a crown of thorns violently shoved down upon his head. 
He's had uh, his, his hands and his feet nailed to a wooden cross, and now he's hanging as a public spectacle of look what happens to those who oppose our values and our, our systems here in this part of the world. So, so G- Jesus is hanging on the cross in this moment. Verse 37, Mark says this, just brief mention. He says, then Jesus uttered another loud cry, and he breathed his last. This is that exhale that transitions from life into death, okay? And then in verse 38, and in that moment when he does that, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, all right? Uh, About 14, 15 years ago, Jess and I were able to travel to um, Washington, D.C. for the first time. I'd never been there before. I'd never seen it. I'd only seen, you know, the the city and, and the buildings on television. And so if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. It's a sight to behold. There's a lot of awe that comes upon you when you're walking around and you're looking at the buildings and remembering the significance of what this monument represents and the people who lost their lives in this battle. And there's the George Washington Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial. You think about the historical moments like MLK standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial giving his I Have a Dream speech and all the crowds of people stretched out across the National Mall there. And you stand in that spot where MLK would have stood and you just think, oh my goodness, the the awe kind of comes over you. And of all the places that I went to, the one place where I'd say awe kind of settled on me the most was when I went to the, the White House for the first time. At the White House, I stood, when you come upon the White House, what you got to understand is downtown D.C. is very crowded, very, very crowded. And we've got an aerial view. I want you to see this aerial view here. Um, the, the, the White House has a lot of green around it. You see that? You've got a ton of buildings tightly packed together, and then you've got the White House kind of stands alone in the middle of a little natural surrounding. So you've got the green of nature, and then you've got the stark white contrast of this beautiful architectural, uh, beautiful building called the White House. And I remember when I, when I first came upon it, I, I, I was in awe of it because I'm thinking about, you know, this building represents the president of my country. It doesn't matter who's in office. You know, the, the, the issue isn't who's behind the desk. The issue is this is the presidency. This is the leader of my country. And presumably that person is working on my behalf, maybe even right on the other side of that wall as I stand 50 yards away looking in. And so I was in awe of this, and I thought, man, that's pretty cool. And then you zoom out just a little bit, and you realize that you've got these armored, you've got these um, large iron gates and in, in, in fences with big spikes on the top, right? And you've got uh, police, in many cases, that are patrolling the perimeter with presumably bomb-sniffing dogs, and they're walking around, and they're keeping things uh, safe. And you've got these large concrete barricades out on the street out in front so that you can't drive down that road anymore. It's barely, you can walk down it, but you can't uh, drive down that road. And then you've got, if you look even closer, you can see Secret Service agents up on the roof of the White House with sniper rifles and maybe around on some of the buildings nearby. And so you sit there and you realize that building represents the presidency, the leader of the free world of the country where I live, and yet look at all the distance between me and him. He he may have been sitting 50 yards away from me on the day I was there, but yet there was so much distance with the police and the snipers and the fences and the, 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 just the distance. And so it, it's come to my attention that I may never 
get to meet a president in my lifetime, a sitting president, even though I may stand as close as 50 yards away from him. I've got a friend here in the church who says um, that when I, when I get up and, and talk, when I, when I speak here, I get kind of professory. And I'm not real sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, okay? Professory, I've had some pretty boring, obnoxious professors in my day, um, but I've also had some good ones that can kind of keep things interesting. I, I get a little bit professory. Is it okay if I get professory and do some teaching here for the next 15, 20 minutes about the significance of this moment? If you said no, it's too late. They just locked the doors, all right? You're, you're stuck. So you got 20 minutes to put up with me, all right? All right. So, so in order to understand what happened in this moment where the, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, as all three of the, the writers say in the Gospels, in order to understand, you've kind of got to rewind. You've got to go back to the beginning and understand what was this curtain? Why was it there? Where did it hang? And things like this. So we're going to rewind about 12 to 13 centuries before the moment where Jesus is hanging on the cross. And this is a season in the history of God's people where Moses is the leader. The people have just exited uh, their slavery in Egypt, and they've been kind of distant from God during their time in Egypt. It was about 400 years they were there, and he was kind of not really at the forefront of their minds. And so God is reintroducing himself to his people over the course of a 40-year journey where they wander around in the, in the desert, okay? They're just wandering around campsite to campsite to campsite. And one of the things that God does in reintroducing himself to them is he's establishing a new way of worshiping him. There are all these new uh, buildings and instruments and um, offices like the priesthood and different things that would be used in the, the um, mode of worship, Okay? And so God introduces all of these things. And the most significant, in my opinion, of all of these things that he introduces is this thing that, we, that he calls, it, it, that is translated in our language as the tabernacle, okay? The tabernacle was the central place of Jewish worship at that time. It was a, a, a God-centered society. So it was not only the center of their worship, it was the center of their lives. You know, their government, uh, their, so, their so, social circles, it all revolved around this building, and so there was, uh, and so God gives them instructions, very specific instructions. Here's how you build this building here in the, the dimensions and, you know, all of this stuff. So God gives it all to them. They build it and it's in the form of a tent. Let's put that slide up there. Uh, so this shows that there, are, there were actually two versions of this same structure. I call it, I'm going to call it the house of worship because it was a temple and a tabernacle, okay? This building... When it was a tent, it was a tent for the purpose of the people were nomadic. They had to move around. And so they had to be able to pack up and take with them uh, their, God's house. Because this was the place where God was going to live among the people. Okay? And so in, in Moses' day and for a few generations after that, this was the, the form. It was a tent and um, God lived there. A few generations later, a guy named Solomon rises to power, and he builds a permanent structure that we call the temple, but it's the same thing. It's just the permanent version because they've now settled. It's the permanent version of what they had in the wilderness. That one's destroyed, and um, then another guy comes along a few generations later named Zerubbabel. I love that name, Zerubbabel, and he, he builds the third version of this, and um, it's later renovated by a guy named Herod the Great. The third version that Zerubbabel and Herod had 
had uh, influence on. That's the one that Jesus interacts with in his day when he's going around and he's teaching and he refers to the temple. It's that one. That temple was destroyed 70 AD and it's no longer in existence. So there have been three versions. But here's why I mention all that. Because each of these three structures was not identical in their layout because, again, one of them was permanent, so it was significantly bigger than the, than the, the first one. But it had the same function. The function was this. This is the place where God's presence, again, would live among the people. And, and, and this was extremely important because when God's presence lived with his people, his, the people were blessed. When God's presence was with the people, they were protected. When God's presence was with the people, they had all the provision they ever needed. When God's presence was with them, they were going to be okay. And God, in his love for his people, he says, I will be with you. I want to be among you. And so build me a place where you can always see that I am with you in the center of your lives, your society. And so... And so, um, and, and so this building has, let's, let's look at that next slide here. It's got three areas. Um, the outside area would have been called the outer court. The, uh, the inside had two areas. There were two rooms on the inside. One area was called the holy place and then the most holy place, all right? So the outer court was essentially, it had a big pot of water for ritual cleansing, a big fire for different kinds of sacrifices. And here's the cool thing about the outer court. Any Jew at all could come into the outer courts. Any person who had been marked by the covenant, which you know, was a, a sign of that they belonged to God, any of those people could come into the outer courts for the purpose of worship. So any of them can come. But then you go inside. The first room on the inside is called the holy place. The holy place has three items of worship. We're not going to talk about what, you know, they all you can study this a little bit. They all pointed to the work that Jesus would do in his life and in his ministry. But there were three items of worship in there. And when, when somebody would go in there, it was only for the purpose of continuing those things. So there was a lampstand. You had to keep the oil fresh. There was a table of bread. You had to keep the bread fresh. There was an altar of incense. They had to keep the, the incense burning, okay? And so the only people who could go into this first room called the holy place were the priests, so that anyone can go in the outer courts, but then to go into the, to the holy place, you have to be a priest. The only people who were priests, it, it was men of a certain age from the tribe of Levi, okay? Men of a certain age from the tribe, tribe of Levi. If you do the math, you can kind of come to maybe that's about one in 40 Jews, roughly, that can go into this room. And so, and so these are the first two areas, and then there's the, the furthest part of the entire structure. It's called the most holy place. This was the room where God's presence actually manifests, okay? The, the Bible teaches us, like in the Psalms, for example, that God is everywhere at the same time. There's one psalmist who says, uh, where can I go that I could hide from God, that I could get away from God? And his conclusion is, I can't go anywhere. He's everywhere, okay? So God, we, we learn is always present everywhere, but yet throughout history, there are times and seasons where God chooses to manifest his presence in a tangible, visible way. And this may be in the form of a burning bush. This may be in the form of a human body. This, but, but it's specifically in this case, in this room, it was in the form of glowing light. Okay, this is called the Shekinah, the presence of God, the glory of God. And it's, it's said that there was no daylight in this room at all. There were no candles in this room at all. The only light that was in the most holy place was the presence of God. It lit up the room. 
And so you've got these three areas, and the only person who could come into this, this room was the high priest. One person, one day a year, and only with the proper sacrifice. Roman, or Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7 says this, Only the high priest entered the most holy place, and only one day a year, and he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. So do you see the, the progressive levels of exclusion in going closer and closer to God? Do you see that? Anyone can come to the outer courts. Only priests can go into the, the holy place. And only the high priest can go into the most holy place. Only one day a year and only with the blood of a sacrifice. All right? So you see that. So in between those two rooms hangs the curtain. You can kind of see this is a cutaway, but that reddish purple curtain there would be the curtain that we're talking about. Let me just give you an idea of what this curtain is. This curtain is probably closer to a, um, a brick wall than it is to a curtain, all right? It's a, it's a massive, a thick, uh, you know, tapestry. It's um, uh, believed to be about 60 feet high, 20 feet wide, and get this, four inches thick, Okay. This ain't just some curtain that you would have hanging, you know, by your, by your windows. This is closer to a brick wall. This thing is indestructible. In fact, one Jewish historian named Josephus tells us that they would have to replace this curtain regularly, like every few years. And, and from time to time, they would tie it to horses on both ends to see if they could pull in opposite directions and tear the thing. And the thing was indestructible. All right, so this is the curtain that hangs between these two rooms, the, the one room being where God's presence actually dwells. So why did the curtain hang there? What was the point of it? The point was very simply this. It was protection, protection for God's people. See, this is what you have to understand. The other thing that God did when he was introducing himself, he, he showed them how to worship you know, and how to interact with each other. But he also shows them that there are these behaviors that he had identified as destructive that he calls sin. And so he says, stay away from these things. Stay away from these sinful behaviors. But what we, you know, when you fast forward a little bit and you look in the New Testament, Paul writes in Romans chapter five, he talks about how sin is not just the bad things that we do, but it's like a sickness that infects us. It gets inside us, and it affects us from the day that we are born. And so everyone who has been born into this world um, of natural means, Jesus being the only one who wasn't because he was born of supernatural means, um, is born with this sickness called sin, right? And God tells them during this whole season, he says that the punishment for sin or the consequence for sin is death. And so here's what would happen if a person came into the presence of God with sin in their lives that they had, that had been not dealt with. Does anyone know what, they, what would happen? They would fall down dead. I know, right? It kind of sounds a little scary, like, whoa, God means business. And it's, it, it can kind of make you start to question, who is this God <laughs> that we're singing to? They just said he was loving. And, and the fact of the matter is, he absolutely is. So let's talk about just briefly why this curtain was there. It was there to protect the people. See, God in his love said, yes, I will be with you. Yes, I want to guide you. Yes, I want to protect you. Yes, I want you to constantly see that I am there with you. That's what the temple reminded them of. But the curtain reminded them that there was this distance. So the curtain was a no. No, you cannot come close. You cannot get too near. And so for about 13 centuries, this was how people related to God. 
was through this feeling of somebody's got to go to his presence for me. Somebody's got to take a sacrifice for my, on, on my behalf. Somebody has to tell me what he's saying because he doesn't speak directly to me. And this was this constant feeling of distance. So the curtain was a visual symbol. It was always among the people, but it always reminded them of, of three things. Let's look at those three things. The curtain reminded them of this. The access that they had to God was limited. Their access to God was limited. Secondly, their relationship with God was distant. And then thirdly, their right standing with God is ever-changing. Let me just briefly explain those three things, kind of flesh them out just a little bit. The access that the people had to God was very limited. You've heard about that. Each level, as you get closer and closer to the presence of God, was more exclusive. Only one person could go into the presence of God on behalf of everyone else, only one day a year, and only with the proper sacrifice. So in other words, people didn't have the ability to go to God and to confer with him in a way that the priest could, or the prophet. There were different offices, different people in different roles. And so, um, and so they, their access to God was limited. Secondly, their relationship with God was distant. In other, again, God's over there in a tent or in a building, he dwells on the other side of that big, massive curtain. And I'm going to stay over here because I know that I'm not worthy of coming into his presence. I've got some junk that, I've dealt, that I need to deal with. Um, I'm just going to stay over here and let the priest go in there for me. So there was distance in that relationship. So the weird thing about that is that God was the God of Israel or the God of Abraham, which was their common ancestor, but he was not the God of Andy. He was not the God of fill in the blank. He was not a personal God. He was a national God, a God of, of, of the nation and the people who were under that nation. And then thirdly, their right standing with God was ever-changing. This is really interesting because I guess this is the best way to explain it. When, we, when people were under this system, the tenuous nature of their right standing with God was this. If my last sin was more recent than my last sacrifice, then I'm in trouble. Think about that for a moment. If my last sin was more recent than my last sacrifice, I'm in trouble. If my last sacrifice was more recent than my last sin, I'm, I'm okay. And so you can see that this is constantly changing. So there was this balancing act. Oh, shoot, I just thought a bad thought. Now I need to um, offer a certain kind of sacrifice. And, and there was all this kind of like balancing of, of sins and sacrifices, sins and sacrifices, and it was ever-changing. Where do I stand with God? I have no idea. Now that'll wear you out, won't it? That'll wear you out. When you're con and, and I think that even today, there are a lot of people who still think in terms of this Old Testament sacrificial system, and we still apply it to our right standing with God today. But I hope what I'm going to show you here is that it, it, it's completely changed. So that was the way people related to God, and, um, and this led to uncertainty in the relationship, a constant feeling of not measuring up. It led to some fear. It led to a lack of trust. It led to, you know, even greater distance because I don't know about you, but like when I feel like I've wronged somebody and, and I'm in a relationship with them and I've wronged them, I, I slowly start withdrawing from that relationship, you know? <laughs> I'm like that, that picture of Homer Simpson that I see on Facebook from time to time where he backs up until he's in the bushes, you know what I mean? Like, like that's how I feel. Like I'm just trying to get back to where 
where nobody can see me anymore. Um, and so this was the way people related to God for 13 centuries. But then something happened. What happened? Good Friday happened, right? Jesus happened. Jesus came and Jesus died on the cross. Jesus lived a perfect life and he died a sacrificial death. Uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us in, in chapters like say 8, 9, 10, right in that area, that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, the once and for all time sacrifice. Jesus was the um, sacrifice that fulfilled all other sacrifices that came before it. And so everything that they tried to do, his sacrifice when he gave up his own life was perfect. And so here's the significance. Here's the significance of what the curtain being torn means for you and me, okay? This is where we need to settle today. Number one, our access to God is completely unlimited. There is no limitation. There was a day when God's people could only access him one day a year uh, through one person, and it, you know, one in three million people or whatever, right? The high priest goes into the presence of God and only with a certain sacrifice. It was very limited. Guess what? Because of what Jesus did, there is no limitation. We have constant access to God's presence, constant ability to turn to him and pray to him and worship him and ask him for guidance and ask him for help and ask him to get you through a difficult situation. Constant access is available to us all the time because of what Jesus did on the cross when the curtain tore in half. Secondly, our relationship with him is intimate. It's personal. No longer do I need the holy man to go to God for me. No longer do I need a, a priest to stand up in, in my place and go to God or a prophet to go to God and say, hey, this is what God says and bring the message back to me, right? No longer is God just the God of the Christians. He's the God of Andy. He's the God of your name, right? It's a personal relationship that we have with him. And then thirdly, our right standing with God is constant. Our right standing with God is constant. Here's what I mean by that. Whereas before Jesus came, there was a balancing act. Sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice. But now... Here's what happens. The moment you put, you put your faith in Jesus and you say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need help. And you, you ask him to come into your life and forgive you. You know what happens? In that moment, you are made just, just right there as if, as if you've never sinned in your life. In that moment, all of your sin, the, one of the, the writers of the Old Testament, the Psalms says, your, God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west, <laughs> you know, which is like, you know, if he said north to south, that's got like an actual distance, right? So you could measure that. But there's no, there's no way to measure how far east is from west. It's infinite is the picture there. God has removed our sins from us because of what Jesus did. Here's what happened when, when Jesus died on the cross, you guys. When Jesus died on the cross, this indestructible curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The significance of that, I love how all three of the, the writers mentioned that it was torn from top to bottom. What does that tell you? Think about that for a moment. It was torn in two from top to bottom. That tells me that God did the tearing. God was the one who did the work that, that 
removed that veil. It was there for a reason, for a time, and it was very important because it, it was God's way of saying, yes, I'm here among you, and I love you, and I will be with you. But it was also God's way of saying, no, you cannot come too close for your own good. This isn't the right time. Someday, you'll be able to. But right now, we've got to figure this, some of this stuff out. And Jesus came in just the right time, and Jesus offered his life as a sacrifice. We've got the ushers coming forward. They're going to um, serve us today. We're going to partake in communion here this morning. And um, they're going to go ahead, gentlemen, just go ahead and start handing it out right away. Um, They're going to go ahead and they're going to serve us. And um, just a little instruction about how this works here at Connect. If, if this is your first time with us, we welcome you. We're so glad you're here. We participate in what's called Open Communion at Connect, which basically means you don't have to be a member. You don't have to be a, a regular here to participate in communion with us. The one thing we would ask is that you would just be able to say in your own heart, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. Um, I may not be the best Christian, but I put my faith in Jesus, all right? That's, that's what we would ask. If, if, you, if you can't say that, then just go ahead. No judgment. Just let the plate pass right on by you. And um, the other thing I'll say is this. When you get the, the juice in the wafer, just hold on to them for a moment. I'm going to lead us in a moment um, in, in partaking in those together. The worship team is going to lead us in one of those choruses as we, as we uh, continue to be served here this morning. But let me just read to you guys a verse from Hebrews chapter 10 where the writer gives us insight into this moment where the veil was torn. He says this, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place. Get this. We can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus, because of the blood of Jesus. So in other words, before Jesus came, there was no bold entrance into the presence of, into the holy place. Okay? There was no bold entrance. It was only with fear. It was hoping that they had done the sacrifices right. And he goes on, he says, by his death, Jesus opened a life, a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, that's Jesus, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting in him. For our guilty consciences have been, have been sprinkled with Christ's blood and, our, and to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water.